Mae West was one of the bad girls of Hollywood. She played risque roles and wrote saucy scripts. One of her Broadway plays was actually raided by the police. They arrested the actress for corrupting the morals of our youth. She was sentenced to 10 days in a New York jail. Someone once said of the actress, she climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. May actually made the comment, I've been in more laps than a napkin. May West became a star by being a slut. And in today's chapters, we find the May West of the Bible, a biblical bad girl, a spiritual prostitute. In verse 5, she's given an unflattering and a very disturbing name, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. This infamous whore of Babylon is a false religious system that rises to prominence in the last days in league with Satan's one world ruler, the Antichrist. Realize, Satan has never ever had an original idea. His desire is to steal worship from God, but he does so by mimicking God. God has a Savior, Jesus Christ, but so does Satan, the Antichrist. God sends the Holy Spirit to draw men to the Savior, while Satan sends the false prophet to lure men to worship the beast. God is preparing the church as a virgin bride for his son Jesus, whereas Satan's beast rides on a compromised religious system that God calls a whore. One day, Satan will have his own church. It reminds me of Mae West's autobiography. It's entitled, Goodness Had Nothing to Do With It. Well, that'll be true with this harlot. This church may carry the name of God, may have a 501c3 nonprofit status, may even be seen as a charitable organization. She's a so-called church, supposedly a good thing, but here we find she's holding a cup full of abomination and filthiness. Goodness has nothing to do with her. In the words of Mae West, the whore of Babylon will say to this world, come up and see me sometime. And sadly, the world will accept her invitation. Chapter 17 begins, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, these bowls brimming now with God's wrath, came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, throughout the Bible, God always speaks of himself as he, male, and of his people as she or female. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the husband and Israel is his wife. In the New Testament, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride of Christ. Recall in Revelation chapter 12, the woman with a wreath of 12 stars was God's people Israel. 
And as in a marriage, God expects trust and fidelity from his people. We're to reserve our hearts and our lives and our minds and our bodies for God. This is the nature of real worship. Realize every human is a worshiper at heart. We all live for a reason, either our pleasure or some vice or a success or a cause or activity or another person. But we're all channeling our affections and our ambitions in a particular direction. And whatever is at the end of that path is the object of our worship. It's our functional God. In the Old Testament, Yahweh demanded Israel's loyalty. In the New Testament, Jesus expects us to reserve our hearts for him. And when either Israel or the church strays, and compromises their commitment. God interprets it as adultery or as fornication. It's a betrayal of a spouse. From God's perspective, spiritual compromise is equal to sexual infidelity. Both involve a sellout. You swap your integrity and your relationship with God for a convenience or for a moment of pleasure. Or in the case of this harlot, for status and monetary gain. In Revelation 19, we'll see the faithful bride of Christ at her marriage to the Lamb. As the bowls of judgment are being poured out on earth, the church loves and worships her Savior in heaven. By this point, the true believers have been raptured. I love Vance Havner's advice to churchgoers. He once said, Don't ever come to church without coming as though it was the first time, and though it could be the best time, and though it might be the last time. Isn't that great advice for us? Don't ever come to church as though it, w it was the first time, maybe the best time, and certainly it could be the last time. That means we need to be ready. But there will be a last time we meet together on this earth as a church. For the true church will be raptured, but a bogus church, this harlot, will be left behind, and it will seduce the world. She's a faith community, but she believes in the beast. She sells her soul for a ride. We'll see later where her ride on the beast gets her. And notice this harlot, we're told she sits on many waters. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, as in other passages, the sea or many waters represents the vast expanse of lost humanity. We talk about the sea of humanity. This idea also gets reiterated in verse 15. Apparently, this harlot will have a global appeal. She'll morph into the world's religion. See, here's the church of the Antichrist. This is the last day's church, the church after the real Christian church has been raptured. You know, current statistics show that the growth of Christianity in America has plateaued. Actually, among 20-somethings, it's in a state of decline. But that doesn't mean that people today are becoming less religious. Religion is on an upswing. Once I sat on a plane next to a lady, we got to talking, and she described herself as a cafeteria Catholic. In other words, she picks and chooses aspects of her faith that suit her tastes. What offends her, she just leaves off her plate. 
And this is the growing trend among Christians in general. People are rejecting the restraints of Orthodox Christianity to concoct their own designer religion. In a 2007 Pew Research poll, 57% of people who called themselves evangelical Christians agreed that there are many ways to heaven, not just Christianity. That means that six in ten professing Christians now deny the exclusivity of Christ. Like a harlot, Christians have sold their Savior for the favors of this world. Realize when the true church gets raptured, there will be churches that will continue with normal operations. It'll be Sunday as usual with a lot of churches. Not everyone who professes Christ is a genuine Christian. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns us, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Mere profession doesn't guarantee possession. It'll be shocking how much of Christendom will be left behind after the true believers have been raptured. Liberal theologians and hypocritical church bureaucrats and appeasing, compromising pastors will all be left behind. And once all those narrow-minded fundamentalists who took the Bible literally are out of the way, it'll be easy then for the new progressive leaders to justify further compromises of the fundamental truths of Christianity. Biblical Christianity will be gutted of its imperatives and blended with other religious ideas. The whore of Babylon will be an all-roads-lead-to-God movement. This is the warning we get in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul told Timothy, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And this great harlot here in Revelation 17 will be the chief perpetrator of deception in demonic doctrines. The whore of Babylon will be the ultimate triumph of tolerance in syncretism. Somehow she'll lull pseudo-Christians and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and Buddhists and New Agers, everyone into one ecumenical bed of belief. If the whore of Babylon has a church bus, you can bet it'll sport one of those coexist bumper stickers. In Revelation 2 verse 22, in his letter to the church of Thyatira, Jesus warned, that he would cast those who committed adultery into great tribulation unless they repent. I believe the fake Christians of both Catholic and Protestant tradition will help make up this awful harlot. Well, John tells us in verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Revelation 13 identifies this blasphemous beast as the Antichrist, the future Fuhrer, the satanic savior. This harlot rides to prominence on the back of the beast. You know, like the Christian churches in Germany who early on supported Nazis, the Nazis and Hitler, the church of the Great Tribulation will sell her soul for a ride on the beast 
The false church will supply the Antichrist with religious sanction, and in return, he'll catapult her to worldly power and prestige. It'll be a marriage made in hell. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Understand, this harlot is no mere streetwalker. She's a high-priced call girl. She's decked out. Her seductions and compromises have gained her a privileged status. And she's clearly identified, verse 5, reports, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Just as God has a headquarters on earth, the city of Jerusalem, Satan likewise has a mission control. He has a headquarters. You know, people sometimes think that Satan's headquarters is hell. As if today he and his demons are huddled around in the corner of the flames of hell, mapping out their strategies. That couldn't be further from the truth. Hell is the last place that Satan wants to be. His headquarters is on earth, and it's called Babylon. Genesis 11 identifies Babel as the site of the first satanic coup d'etat, the first global revolt against God. Nimrod, a man whose name means we will rebel, rallied the tribes of man against God. He convinced them that even though God promised to never flood the earth again, God couldn't be trusted. Fear God. Trust Nimrod. This was his campaign slogan. And it worked. At Babel, they built a waterproof tower in the midst of the desert. If God tried another flood, they'd be ready. Of course, along with this brazen rebellion, Nimrod created his own religion. He built a tower to reach God. Through their own efforts, mankind would ascend to God's place. His followers would be as wise as God was the promise. Nimrod, he guaranteed enlightenment and self-deification. And this is Satan's promise today. Oh, you can be your own God. We're all basically good. Just look for the God within us. See, religion always tries to build a tower to God. Different religions might use different rules, but all religions are about erecting a way for man to climb above his own reach and get to God. And it all traces back to Babylon. This is why the harlot of the last days is called the mother of harlots and abominations. She's the source, the fountainhead. And in the end, all of her chicks will come home to roost. All the variants of Nimrod's lie will return to mama. Verse 6 is the telling passage. John writes, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And here's the creed of this religious harlot. Believe in anything but Jesus. Believe in anything but Jesus. Everything is shown tolerance except faith in Christ. You know, given current attitudes, this may be the one prophecy in Revelation that's easiest to believe. Today, Jesus is where the world takes offense. 
Oh, you can talk about God and folks will applaud. But say, Jesus, and they'll immediately try to shut you up. Jesus is and will be the line of demarcation between real Christianity and this harlot's bogus brand. John continues in verse 6. And when I saw her, that is this mother of harlots, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And what follows is the angel's explanation. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. His origin and his destiny is perdition or hellfire. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. The rise of this beast will be a source of astonishment to people all around the world. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And almost universally in the writings of antiquity, the city on seven hills was a synonym for Rome. Note verse 18 also identifies this city as that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, the first century, the emperors ruled from the capital city of Rome. This means that in the last days, this harlot sitting on the beast will be a religious system based in Rome. Now in Revelation 13, we talk about the connection between Rome and the last day's beast. If you weren't here for Revelation 13, you should go back and listen to it. Daniel 9, as well as other passages, inform us that the Antichrist will lead a revived Roman Empire. See, in John's day, Rome dominated the world. It was. That's before it fractured into various kingdoms. And for a time, it is not. Now today, we see a resurgence of nations that make up ancient Rome. The European Union is the Rome that yet is. This is the beast that was and is not and yet is. And do you know the favorite symbol of the EU, the European Union? Do you know? It's a woman riding on a beast. You'll find it on a German phone card or on the back of a two-euro coin or in a Time magazine graphic for United Europe. It's the sculpture outside the European Parliament. It's a woman riding on a beast. Or on two European postage stamps or on a German magazine cover. You'll find it anywhere. Even in the 2015 Super Bowl halftime, Katy Perry was the woman riding on the beast. The world is being prepped. It's being conditioned to accept this last day's harlot of Revelation 17, and her home will be Rome. And of course, what worldwide religious system is headquartered in Rome today? Well, it's none other than the Roman Catholic Church. 
And this is the observation that has led many people to connect this harlot with Roman Catholicism. What makes this even more provocative is that over the centuries, Roman Catholic religion has integrated many pagan and Babylonian practices into its tradition. The Pope's title, the Pontiff Maximus, or High Priest, was a name taken from the Babylonian priesthood. Practices like the use of icons, the celibacy of priests and nuns, purgatory, Lent, holy water, the Mass, the veneration of Mary, salvation by sacrament, all these things can be traced back to Babylonian paganism, not the Bible. Yet do I believe the religious harlot of Revelation 17 is exclusively the Roman Catholic Church? No. I think this horror will be broader than any one church or one religion. It'll be the amalgamation of religions into a global religion that will be used by the Antichrist to seduce the world into worshiping him. Verse 10 tells us there are also seven kings Not only are the seven heads, seven heels, they also represent seven kings. He says five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Five world-spanning empires preceded the first century in John's writing of Revelation. Five have fallen, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece. The world empire that existed at the time, the one that is, was Rome. But since Rome, many men have tried to rule the world. Attila the Hun, Charlemagne, Genghis Khan, Napoleon Bonaparte, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, they all tried, but none were able. Yet there is one more world empire yet to come, John writes, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. When the Antichrist unifies a fractured world under the auspices of his new Rome, his reign will be brief. Daniel 9 tells us that it'll last just seven years, a drop in the bucket compared to the previous six empires. Verse 11 tells us, And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven and is going to perdition. The seventh beast is a revived Rome, and the eighth is its leader, the Antichrist himself, and both are bound for hell or perdition. And then the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. The Antichrist will establish ten provinces, apparently, and he'll appoint subordinates to help him, But they won't reign long. Don't waste your time looking at today's political landscape for this kind of configuration. This happens towards the end. And these kings don't last long, just a single hour. Verse 13, these are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. In other words, these ten kings drink the Kool-Aid. They sell their soul to the beast And they're used to catapult him to political power. Yet talk about hitching your wagon to the wrong horse. They find themselves in a fearful position. For verse 14 tells us, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, 
and faithful. There are lots of beasts in the jungle, but Jesus is the king of the jungle. The beast and his ten buddies are Jesus' foe at the Battle of Armageddon, and we'll study about it next week. God put down Nimrod in the first Babylonian revolt by confusing the languages and dispersing the people, but he destroys the final battle, Babylon, by gathering the nations together in the plain of Megiddo to make war with the Lamb. We'll read about that battle next Sunday. Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, the harlot will cast a worldwide web. Verse 16, And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. Irony of all ironies. The beast and his buddies will turn on the harlot. After they use her up, they'll spit her out. The fake church left on the earth after the rapture. This pseudo-Christian church that ceases being Christian to appease the world and avoid persecution. Where does it get them? Here we're told naked and eaten and burned. Here's the possible progression. For the first half of this final seven years, the Antichrist is hailed as a man of peace. Both Jews and Arabs, all religions of the world get along. The false prophet and the religious harlot spread the message. All roads lead to God. Everyone coexist. But at the midpoint of the tribulation, as we've talked about several times now, the Antichrist reveals his true colors. He defiles the temple in Jerusalem and claims to be God. The harlot is no longer needed. From now on, the only religion allowed is the worship of the beast. And to secure that worship, the Antichrist blackmails the world. We talked about that. To participate in his commercial system, it takes a mark in your right hand or in your forehead, the number 666. Those that refuse are either starved or martyred. And then verse 17 tells us, For God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And in John's day, there was only one city that fit that description. That was Rome. Thus, in the last days, there will be a revival of the empire. Today, geographically, Rome is synonymous with Europe. But spiritually, she is an offspring of idolatrous Babylon. That's why chapter 17, verse 5, calls the Antichrist church Babylon. Chapter 17 speaks of this religious Babylon, while chapter 18 focuses on a commercial Babylon. For last days, Rome will include both a world religion and a world economy. For understand this, religion is a matter of the heart. But where your treasure is, your heart will be also. This is why Satan controls commerce to capture our hearts. And so chapter 18 begins to talk about this commercial Babylon. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. 
And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. See, remember, Babylon is Satan central. It was never just a city, but a system. It's a trap the devil uses to deceive and to manipulate. And Satan seduces the world through both religion and riches. Babel is about both. Here we're told that it's Babylon's wealth that entices the world to worship at the altar of the Antichrist. The nations drank her spiritual fornication to become rich. You know, for any student of human nature and of world history, it's no surprise that the nations of this world will sell out principle for profit. We see it every day. Give people more entitlements. Give them new jobs. Give them lower interest rates. Give them peace and prosperity. And they'll overlook a sinister spiritual agenda. The Antichrist will usher in an age of opulence, and the nations of this world will sell their soul for a piece of the pie. And I hope we haven't been seduced by the spirit of Antichrist. How willing are we to trade godliness for momentary gain, for monetary gain? Or to compromise spiritually, to get ahead financially? Have we ever done that? It's alarming the moral concessions, the spiritual concessions that people make for one more lousy dollar. Let's make sure we're free from the love of money. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. If forced to make a difficult choice, would you choose devotion to God or the luxuries of this life? And verse 4 tells us, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. Just as God called the righteous out of Sodom before judgment came down, here he warns the world of the pending destruction of Babylon. A gracious God offers the world a chance to repent of its materialism. He says, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, God has scrutinized Babylon's books. He's noted her every transaction, every workplace injustice, every employee who was abused, every sweatshop. Every time the currency was manipulated for someone's financial advantage, every time profit took precedent over people, God took note. And now he says, render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. Babylon bellies up to the bar and God orders her a double shot of his wrath. Heaven adds, in the measure that she glorified herself 
and live luxuriously in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. The rich of this world who've made a fortune on the backs of neglected workers, beware. You'll be treated as you've treated others. You see, this is what heaven is saying, but here is what Babylon is thinking. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I'm no widow and will not see sorrow. She's smug, she's secure, she feels invulnerable. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. I bet he is. Wow. The commercial titans of this world, the market managers, will be judged in one day, suddenly and comprehensively. Notice they're utterly burned with fire. I think of the recent explosions on the docks in Beirut. Those chemical eruptions have crippled the entire Lebanese economy. It's interesting, one day a similar catastrophe will strike the world's commercial center. Verse 9 tells us, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and live luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment. Why are the kings standing at a distance? Perhaps they're afraid of some radiation fallout. Notice they're crying. Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. How can a huge metropolis burn to a crisp in one hour? Why are the kings at a distance watching? Perhaps it's the result of a nuclear explosion. That's why she utterly burns and is destroyed. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. Woe! They're trading in the bodies and souls of men. Notice John says that in the world of the last days, they'll not only be trading in jewelry and clothing and industrials and perishables, but in the bodies and souls of men. Today, millions of people are trapped, still trapped in some form of slavery. From sweatshops to the sex trade, human trafficking is a modern day problem. And we should support those who are shining God's light into that dark world. Verse 14 tells us, The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. You know, it's a good reminder to all of us that the material stuff around us, our house, our car, our antique furniture, our baseball card collection, It's all going to be gone one day. I hope you're investing in what will last forever. He says, the merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, alas, alas, 
That great city that was clothed in the fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Boy, here today, gone the next hour. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? Destruction occurs in one hour. Onlookers remain at a distance. Again, are they afraid of the fallout of a nuclear blast? Perhaps. Now here, it's obvious. There is a specific city in view. The Bible calls it Babylon. But as we've said, Babylon is not just a city, but a system. Could this actually be Rome? A European financial center? Could it be New York, the financial center of the world? Could it be the center of Arab wealth, Dubai? Or is it literal Babylon? Saddam Hussein started to rebuild ancient Babylon before the Iraq wars. Our troops used it as a base camp. Today, Babylon is a fledgingly tourist attraction. Perhaps one day the city of Babylon will be rebuilt with its strategic Middle East location and with its oil reserves, it could rise from the ashes. But whether what we see here is a city or a system, Babylon will be known not for its rise, but for its fall, its tremendous fall. What's predicted in chapter 14, verse 8, by the second angel who canvassed the globe is fulfilled here. That great city, Babylon, is fallen, is fallen. The world's wealth will come to ruin. And they threw dust on their heads and they cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. All of the hopes and dreams wrapped up in the financial futures of the world came to an end and they wept and wailed because that's where their treasure was. Yet while earth mourns, heaven celebrates. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. The beast and Babylon had collaborated. To buy or sell, you needed a mark. And to get that mark, you had to bow. And here the Babylon that persecuted God's people gets her retribution. She'll suffer what she's dished out. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. The millstone was an ancient symbol for commerce and business. And yet here the millstone is thrown into the sea. You see, God is tired of man's greed. Hey, greed is not good. Greed is sin. You know, if capitalism means an investment of funds to grow businesses and create jobs and provide goods and services for the betterment of society, then God is for it. But if capitalism means rich people exploiting workers to pad their own pockets off the backs of the poor, then God is against it. One day, he'll throw all of our systems of greed into the sea like a millstone. And the angel said, 
Thus, with violence, the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. Business, life in general, will be interrupted by God's judgment. And then verse 23. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. What an indictment. The merchants of this world, big business, if you will, is accused of the sin of sorcery. When does an advertiser go beyond truthfulness and engage in willful manipulation? Is it moral to advertise alcohol without warning of its addictive properties? Are using marketing techniques to target children, is that right? And we all know that sex sells, but does that make it right? Will God not judge that one day? You see, sorcery, that is evil advertising and manipulation, will one day be judged by God. Now, I graduated from Georgia State with a degree in business. But the whole time I was there, no one ever told me that God will one day judge our business and marketing practices. They sure didn't. Don't tell God to mind your own business. For the world will discover that his authority extends to all of our business. You know, whenever wrongdoing gets investigated, someone always says, follow the money. Follow the money. So much of the evil in our world is motivated by greed. This is what happens in the last days. And God's judgment is going to follow the money. Finally, verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. This was true of ancient Rome. The Colosseum was the site of Christian persecution and martyrdom. The Rome of the last days will be similarly guilty. And all this sets up the final showdown. In chapter 19, God and Satan, Christ and Antichrist will square off for a final battle. We call it the battle of Armageddon. But in closing, if I followed the money in your life, where will it take me? To a greedy heart or to a heart that's intent on pleasing and glorifying God? If I follow the money, where will it take me? See, our true priorities are most quickly revealed by our attitudes toward money. Let's bow all of our lives, including our wealth, to King Jesus. For he is the king of the jungle. Father, we 